Before we get started for this week's show, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who support us on Patreon, who will get an extended version of this week's show. From just $2 US a month as a patron, you can access extended podcasts and other bonus content. This week, we discuss the postponement of the T20 World Cup and other news around the world before catching up with Jared Kimber again in part two of our chat with him. Stick around. Welcome again to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Bezik and I'm joined by the other two-thirds of the Emerging Cricket Podcast crew. First, up in Brisbane, Tim Cutler. I hear you and your wisdom teeth have parted ways. How are you feeling? Well, it was a bad breakup. Um, I'm doing <laughs> my best not to sound too much like Marlon Brando. Um, so this is as good as it sounds, everybody. But yeah, that was on Friday last week and it's uh, yeah all four at once. It's uh, It's been an experience. You could soothe yourself with last week's release of the EC Pod, which did drop Friday. We had part one of our chat with Jared Kimber. We have part two coming up a little bit later on. But first, uh, the Emerging Cricket Podcast would not be complete without our third host, Copernicus Cricket, Nick Skinner. Nick, how's things? I'm very well. I've just been watching some test cricket, which feels like it hasn't happened for a very long time. And uh, yeah, just thinking back to when the Intercontinental Cup was still running and you know, how great it is to, or was to see associates playing multi-day cricket. And it's just a shame because test is best, as we all know. <laughs> that is a pretty tenuous uh, link. I know it's still... F- I, I, I was going to say, like, he, he must have really wanted to be talking about it there. It's like it's not exactly the first thing I think about when I watch test cricket. <laughs> all I ever think about is associate cricket connections. <laughs> the one good thing about this test series has been that it is a bit more contextual with the ICC Test World Championship. As flawed as that World Championship is, it's better than just a pointless bilateral series. So it has been great. Uh, as I said before, part two of our chat with Cricket's Everywhere man, Jared Kimber, will be coming up a little bit later in the show. But first, some important news to get through in the context of world cricket and especially for associate cricketers. The T20 World Cup has been postponed. Uh, it was meant to be held in Australia later this year it's been an ongoing point there's been rumors circulating for for months now in regards to the fate of the tournament but we finally had an official announcement this week they've had multiple meetings speculation as to what they're actually going to do uh in 2021 and 2022 we're not sure if australia will be hosting the tournament next year or the year after and where india sit on all of this i have a few points of conversation that i want to bring up but i think the first thing i want to talk about and, and tim i'll start with you is that for a lot of these full member cricketers They'll have the IPL and other tournaments to worry about, other bilateral cricket to tie themselves over with. For the associates, they've prepared a long time, you know, for 18, 24 months for this particular tournament. Contextual cricket, they've been unable to play their own international cricket, as have a lot of others. And these associates just have to wait a little bit longer just to make their mark on the international scene. That is true. But we talk about wanting to have associates involved in global events. And this is one where they they are at, at the heaviest level in global cricket at the moment. And with that comes also the downside of it being uh, dealt with as a, as a global event and then not necessarily looking at it from an associate cricket point of view so look it was inevitable it was going to happen the way that global events work is that Australia is the host to receive some money to, to host the event but then they keep the ticket sales so if they weren't going to be able to have crowds and whether it was safe to have crowds was going to mean it was always going to be really hard to host what that means for associates yes all the prep that's come to that leading up to the type of cricket they wanted to be playing in Australia they've got another year and we know that a year is 
a long time in associate cricket with players coming and going and the churn that happens there with the, with not having as many players on professional contracts. So that'll be really interesting to see what, what the decision is made and how that changes teams and their preparations. Yeah, I think we made the point last year when, when the qualifiers happened that it was a long way away, you know. A year after the qualifiers is when it was scheduled to happen and now it's going to be two years after the qualifiers. So someone like Ryan Tendiskate is going to be, what, 41, 42? He'll be 41, yeah. Yeah. And still smoking him. I'm sure he'll still be really good, but yeah, it's a long time to wait between actually qualifying and getting to the event. And obviously, a global pandemic's a pretty good reason to be pushing something back. I think an encouraging sign is that they haven't actually just binned one i've seen some chat of you know oh, well, why why have so many tournaments in such a short period of time just completely cancel one and that would be disastrous for these associate countries who've put so much into qualifying and then to just have that taken away so i'm glad that it's still going ahead and yeah hopefully we sort out who actually gets the tournament because cricket australia and, and the bcci the, the word on the ground is that they're still discussing who's going to go first. And I don't know, it just seems like the BCCI, they still haven't sorted out their, their tax exemption mm. dispute with the ICC. So it, it wouldn't really make sense to me for them to be hosting it next year while that's still hanging over their heads. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, that's an important point. And the other thing that I want to bring up too is that looking at the way a lot of these teams prepared for the qualifier and how the teams have shaped themselves over the last 12 months. And I'll use Ryan Campbell and the Netherlands as an example here. I'm sure they formulated their plans with Australia in mind, Mm. given that they they will be meant to be playing in Australia. You know, you look at the way that that Dutch team's lined up and just that that fast bowling attack of Van Meekeren and Glover and Van der Hoogt and and co. Not quite having that same effect in, in somewhere like India where, you know, it's probably a little bit more conducive to spin. Granted, you know, they've got the likes of Van der Merwe, Sailor, Boisivan as well if they absolutely need to. But, you know, the way that Cambo had built that squad in the last 12 months, you could tell it was with that Australian World Cup in mind. So I'm hoping, you know, we don't see this this shuffle where we've got India first and then Australia second. I just don't, I can't compute the idea because, you know, if, if everything is frozen like it is now and we have no cricketing, you just want to slide everything back and everything further back. It gives India more time to prepare. Australia could host a T20 World Cup tomorrow if they absolutely needed to. Of course, the situation you know doesn't make that possible in terms of a pandemic but we just hosted a women's t20 world cup pretty much unhitched and looking at, at the way that it's set up and yeah you made the point nick that the tax exemption for india there's still a lot of things going on and we thought it was crazy to have two world cups in the space of 12 months and yeah it probably is still crazy but it's actually a great opportunity for the icc when you think about it now and it's a good excuse you know you've got the tv rights you've got you know avenues of funding and, and income to have those two world cups it means that world cricket should be financially okay once we do get out of the woods in this pandemic. Some other news that came out in regards to this, it looks like the Super League is still all go with the 50 over World Cup in 2023. Uh, And the Women's Cricket World Cup next year in February is still set to go ahead as planned in February in New Zealand. New Zealand essentially COVID free, so should be unaffected. The only issues would be surrounding traveling inbound to New Zealand. It's a good news story, I think, for the women in the game. But Nick, I'll I'll, pass it over to you. Doubts about the, the Super League were thrown up as well, and it looks Looks as if, you know, all the qualification measures for that 2023 World Cup look set to be in stone at this stage. Yeah, I mean, 
a few months is a long time in a pandemic, so it's it's hard to know what's going to happen. But the, the Cricket World Cup for 2023, the men's event, has been pushed back six months, which does give the Super League a bit more time to squeeze in all of the fixtures and, of course, the ODI uh, League 2 and the Challenge League. So all of those tournaments now have a little bit more breathing room in terms of uh, you know being played out before the cutoff. And, and the women's, yeah, interesting that they haven't pushed the Women's World Cup back. I guess being held in New Zealand, it's probably the safest place you can be in terms of uh, in terms of COVID at the moment, but it you know it does raise the question of what they're going to do with the qualification because you know in theory the qualification was was supposed to be happening around about now actually and where's that going to be played when's that going to be played are they going to do it just before the main event in New Zealand maybe or you know that's that's one of the big questions I think that the ICC needs to be looking at and yeah hope, hopefully that none of that gets wiped away because that would be a real shame to see the the associates and the you know the lower ranked full members not have the chance to compete to qualify. And speaking of wiping away, you know, what we haven't talked about or heard anything about what of the effect that this has on the, the qualification for 2021, the men's T20 event, remembering that we're having a truncated version of those, the split global qualifier, and that was going to go on the back of the, the results of 2020. Um, it's going to mean there's a lot of cricket to try and fit in there. So whilst we are lucky that the ICC needs to run, run these events because they need the income from Star Media Rights deal to be able to distribute to members and, and run the game, but this just hope it doesn't get to the point of them just rushing it in as, as quickly as they can and potentially having smaller events. I think that's my biggest concern out of all of this. You know, there was the inevitability of the 2020 event being postponed, but I just hope that at the at the whip end, the crack end of all this, it isn't the associates that are, that are shut out of the door. Also, the ICC can just run it quickly without any manner of, of uh, qualification. Uh, more news to discuss, boys. Certainly worth talking about. Uh, Major League Cricket in America still seems to be planning all guns blazing and uh, South Africa is the location where many of these players are seemingly being picked up from. Story dropped on our website, uh, emergingcricket.com. Coming from uh, Nate Hayes, one of our great contributors. There's been a lot of great content over the last few weeks uh, between him and Tom Grunshaw, Isaac Lockett, several people who have been well and truly keeping the emerging cricket movement moving forward but in terms of the USA and we've had a couple more professional signings from South Africa Willem Ludic and Kami LaRue a couple of names that will be familiar if you do keep up with South African cricket looking at both of them Ludic is a right arm medium bowler he's considered an all-rounder played for central districts in New Zealand and Kami LaRue left arm medium fast bowler who's represented Hawk Tongue <sighs> look boys we, we've talked about this multiple times now the idea of nationality and the idea of, of these players coming Coming over three years time to qualify for the USA. Dane Pete went over. Well, I don't think he has actually gone over, but he signed an American deal. We've seen a number of Australian guys go over to the USA as well. Uh, people involved in USA cricket have actually been quite open in terms of these people going over for the sake of qualifying in three years time, as per the current ICC regulations. There seems to be a very slippery slope here. You know, once we get into stuff like this, we have the likes of Oman who do the same thing as well, Nick, in terms of bringing players over and eventually being their long enough to qualify for Oman. UAE, we know the situation is a little bit different there. People go there for work and then all of a sudden they, they qualify to play for UAE. What's the solution here? I know you've talked about eligibility quite a lot on, on the website and, and other places around and Twitter, it gets a workout. It's always a big talking point. Where's the happy medium here? Because I don't think anyone's found it yet. <laughs> no, well, if, if someone had the 
they probably would have uh, written it into the ICC eligibility criteria. But I, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's tricky because eligibility is one thing and you can have all different rules around who's allowed to play and who's not. And I personally, I think the residency qualification is, is a bit too loose, especially for people coming over from uh, cricket playing countries who, who've already played professional cricket. Um, it's interesting seeing someone like Willem Ludic, who's, what, 23? So he's you know only just starting out his career and he's already deciding to throw his lot in with the US. Whereas Kami Larue, is a bit different in that you know if you read the statement he put out when he announced the signing he sort of said he seemed like he'd reached the end of the line with his career in South Africa and you know he'd lost his domestic contract so he was looking around for options whereas Ludic had already moved to New Zealand to pursue a career there and and now he's jumping ship to America so yeah the question I would come back to is is this helping develop the game and you know importing players in can bring you success for the national team and on the field but Will that actually increase interest in the sport domestically, and will it get more people in America playing cricket? I, I don't. I don't think it will. Yeah, look, we're talking about a professional league here, and professional leagues around the world should be free to import players to to increase the the level there. And I don't think that's the issue that we have here. There are going to be twenty four minor league teams. There are going to be enough spots in those teams for the the best. And probably the next couple of layers down of, of American talent to be playing with and against each other and also having these pros. You could almost argue that maybe they need more than a pro per team. But it's how this is being sold and, and how it will affect cricket in America over the, the next couple of years. And I think it was telling to see the, the agent who was doing the, the interview of, of the player over the weekend announcing the signing, basically saying, like it, it sounded more like that the agent was pushing it rather than the player. So I'm going to sit back here and just take it at, at, at face value but the agent was saying well this is going to be great for you because you go to a place like an America and qualify as an associate most main T20 tournaments now this is the the agent's words not mine most main T20 tournaments around the world except the IPL have a slot a reserve slot for associate cricketers so <laughs> you'll be great to come over and qualify or take advantage of that and that is completely not in the spirit of anything to do with growing the game qualifying for a country so you can take slots reserved for players from associate countries in these events that's one thing but we also also know that that doesn't exist (laughs) around the world reserve slots for associate players is something that we argue for a lot the afghanistan premier league had it but that's been postponed so that's that that's not happening the caribbean premier league has one reserve slot for an associate being an america's slot and we've talked about that that only pays three thousand dollars and then there was the global t20 canada which who knows whether in this sort of post-covid world whether the likes of the gt20 canada and and euro t20 slam are going to be able to get enough interest and income to run these events so not only is he coming for reasons that are one could be a little bit cynical um, about the reasons for going there, but it's actually completely false. So I think there's an education piece here as well about what the, the world of being an associate is like, because I'll tell you what, it isn't a golden ticket to make your way into any <laughs> T20 league around the world. I think the key takeaway here is that sport agents need to listen to the Emerging Cricket podcasts. That's that's what we're that's what we're all saying here, right? As well as everyone else who is you know remotely interested in the game. Absolutely, and listen and, and do what everything we say. But look, I think when I posted that in the uh, the cricket subreddit, not the emerging cricket one, because I thought it actually had um, would have a lot of interest in the broader cricketing world of people saying, oh, look, these guys aren't even anywhere near the pro tiers. It's like, well, this is only the minor league. This is not the major league next year. And, you 
you know, it's all well and good for people to be finding opportunities like this, but I don't want it to be in a robbing Peter to pay Paul situation. And we could talk about the effect or the potential effect of a, of a future version of, of Colpac and what that looks like. The last thing we want is to see a drain from a full member nation that's struggling anyway, or any other country for that matter, to America. And I, you brought it up before, Nick, about developing the game there. How does that help the game there? If that develops an interest in people in the game, if people are, are suddenly drawn to it by more skillful players from overseas, bringing talent that wasn't necessarily there and gets people interested in the game, then great. But, you know, we could, I guess for the minor and major league to work, that's got to happen because if people aren't watching it, they're not going to be able to get the advertising dollars that comes in for it. But yeah, I don't know. It just, it kind of really hit at the heart of what we're all about when you got the agent telling the player on an Instagram story, oh, well, that's good because you can take those associate slots by coming over and qualifying. Yeah. <laughs> If there were that many associate slots available, I think cricket would be in a better position internationally. Mm. But um, yeah, as, as you say, it was interesting talking to Nate about the situation, you know, the, they're calling it minor league, major league cricket. The comparison to baseball, no one really watches the minor league baseball for the top quality of the sport. They watch it for the, you know, the local connection to the club yeah. and they watch it for the atmosphere and, you know, a fun, cheap day out with a local sports team. And I, I think that's what the minor league cricket should be trying to do is trying to create that local connection and you know, we saw a couple of years ago with the success of playing internationals in Morrisville where they had really good support if you can replicate that or something like that with the minor league in terms of creating an actual bond to the local community that would be what you're trying to achieve whereas just flying in some some journeyman south africans is anyone in that city really going to care about them no one no one's going to come to watch Willem Ludic no offense to him, but it's it's not like you're bringing in Chris Gale. Mm. One more final point I'll, I'll stress is that bringing in full member players for the sake of a national team has not been necessarily the formula of uh, dominating associate cricket either. So you know, to all those countries out there who've complained about passport players in the past, and and we know how countries are made up in terms of international talent, it hasn't been a, a formula of its, of success. You know, to think that the USA were bowled out for 35 by Nepal just months ago in Cricket World Cup League Two is an indication of that plenty to discuss there and yeah we'll be keeping a keen eye on on the usa cricket scene we discuss it a lot there's an abundance of potential in the area and there's thousands of players across the country but there's never really been a way to unite everyone and and to drive everyone up and build everyone up and and to make them a successful country so hopefully for their sake and and for associate cricket in general and its competitiveness we do see that the americans get that right and, and build that game up from from the ground up some more news around the world and on the theme of South African players in the emerging world, Curtis Camper has been included in Ireland's training squad before their three-match ODI series in England. The three ODIs will be played between the 30th of July and the 4th of August. Fixing has reared its ugly head again this time in Cyprus where Limassol Gladiators have been kicked out of the European Cricket Series leg and are now under investigation after their underperformance. The ICC has also confirmed their anti-corruption unit are looking into the matter. Denmark is set to host Germany and Finland for a T20 international tri-series next month, the first international cricket for all three sides since the pandemic. Six matches will be played from the 25th to the 28th of August, while Luxembourg hosts Belgium and the Czech Republic from the 28th to the 30th. To news in the Netherlands and in the top class of VRA, Punjab and HCC are undefeated through three rounds. With more on the competition and other Dutch news, here's Rod Lyle. It's a pretty unusual season in the top class of this year. Just nine rounds instead of the usual 18. No title at stake, no relegation threat. And comparison with last year and the years before, 
relatively few overseas players. And that's creating an opportunity for the younger players to come through and strut their stuff. For VRA, for example, 14-year-old Luke Hartsink took three for 19 in the opening game against Dosti. And then last week, Vikram Singh, who is just 17, made 99 before he was run out going for what would have given him his 100 uh, in the uh, innings against HBS for ACC, uh, also an Amstel Vein club. Shreyas Potter, who's 17, made 62 not out against Forberg. And then last Sunday, Mace van Fleet, 16 years old, took four for 39 against Sparta, including wickets with the first two deliveries of the match. Excelsior have been able to blood fat players with well-known names like Van Trost and Skaver. Forberg's captain is 20-year-old Bostelada, uh, the son of uh, former international captain Tim Delader. VRA are undoubtedly one of the sides to beat, one of the three unbeaten teams uh, after three rounds, along with Punjab, uh, who have now four Zulfikars, including the triplets who've moved from ACC, and international opener Steph Mayberg, who made 105 not out on Sunday against VOC. And the third club, which is unbeaten, is HCC, uh, with Tony Stahl as captain, Boris Horley, promising young players, Stahl already, uh, some international experience. They've got uh, Clayton Floyd, who's transferred from Forberg, and Damien Crowley, the former Italian international. Uh, so they've got a, a strong-looking side, uh, and it looks like being, even, even the, in these unusual conditions, it looks like being a very interesting season with six rounds to go. Pick of the games this coming Sunday is that between VRA and HCC at De Deepet. Uh, and after that, one of the uh, those two clubs clearly will not have an unbeaten record. To Central America and Mexico has announced a new state within its governing body. For more, here's Cricket Mexico's Craig White. Very exciting news. We've just incorporated our fifth uh, state into Mexico cricket, the state of Sonora, which is right on right in the north of Mexico on the border with Arizona and New Mexico. And the interesting thing about this is that this is um, a Mexican started and led project. Um, there was a, a Mexican businessman. He got in touch with us on Facebook um, with a proposal to develop cricket in Sonora in order to give an alternative sport to baseball. And he got interested in cricket because he watched just by accident a documentary on HBO about cricket and he thought it, would, he thought it looked interesting. Following that, he got in touch and wanted to get involved. That's all the news we have time for. Make sure to log on to EmergingCricket.com to catch up on all your emerging cricket news around the world. But for now, here's part two of our chat with Jared Kimber. Hi guys, I'm Chris Pierce, the head coach of the Czech Cricket Academy. Právě posloucháte Emerging Cricket podcast. Going back to the way that cricket teams aren't optimizing their resources, uh, one interesting idea I've seen is is that of a, a specialist fielder, and obviously fielders, and this is a bit like wicket keepers, can make a huge difference. And a lot of the time, not all of your batsmen bat. So if you do have a specialist fielder, it's not necessarily going to damage your your batting lineup. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one, especially for T20 cricket. Uh, Hayden Walsh was probably my last big hope for that, and now he's too good a cricketer to probably do that anymore, sadly. <laughs> uh, not sadly for him, uh, but sadly for my pet theory. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, realistically, players go on and off the field in franchise T20 cricket, toilet breaks, changing shoes, all these sorts of things. You really, if you have the option to have a world-class fielder come on, I think it's a no-brainer. I think it's certainly a way that teams should go about it. You know, I mean, it's not exactly new, is it? England did it in a test series against Australia in 2005. I, I knew that was going to come as soon as you started talking about a specialist fielder. This this was all about giving Gary Pratt another moment in the sun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but teams do that a lot anyway, don't they? Like Jordan Silk, uh, you know, would quite often be 12th man for Australia, I think early on in his career. And there was a lot of very good young fielders for Australia, South Africa and England, who had their chance to field because they're known as good fielders. Taking that next level and making it a thing makes sense to me. I would, oh, if the IPL keeps growing, eventually I think we would see something along these lines you might get the eight overseas player in uh, in the IPL might do something like that I remember when I went to the CPL and one of the overseas players said to me the best thing to do in the CPL is to find four overseas players who fit a spot within your team but make sure that all of them can feel and I think that actually makes quite a lot of sense um, a lot of time in a lot of these leagues especially as some of the you know in some of those leagues the fitness of the younger not so much the fitness but the, the fielding awareness and the fitness all sort of comes together so specialist fielders do make sense just not sure how you carry that uh, you know it's the sort of thing that Chennai could do but I'm not sure how many other teams in the world would be able to do that you've talked a lot about what people aren't seeing or aren't looking for mm -hmm. what do you look for in a player I know, I know we could talk very uh, micro about about skill sets but uh, do you have a sort of a top line thing that you in your mind when, when you're looking at players I my big thing is usually role definition so it's all well and good for you to tell me that this player is a good cricketer what specifically do they do that makes them a good cricketer so uh, you know, one of the big problems with, with those sorts of things is every T20 team in the world ends up with something like seven uh, opening batsmen in their squad, right? It's a completely pointless way of doing things, having that many opening batsmen. Realistically, you, you, you want to look at where they fit in. So when I'm putting a team together or where I'm consulting or when I'm doing analysis, I'm literally like, okay, you want your best 11 players on the field, but five of them are opening batsmen. So what we might need to do then is look at how these different things go in. So what I want to look at is, what does Chris Lynn do specifically? And if, if Chris Lynn's already in my side, how do I match the other opening batsman to Chris Lynn? So when we were at Solutia, we basically knew that Andre Fletcher and Raheem Cornwall were probably going to be two of our top three. Who do we need to match those two with? David Warner is not a particularly good match for Raheem Cornwall. But if Chris Gale comes available on the market, or if JJ Smuts um, is available in the draft, you you might want to suddenly then bring in someone like that because JJ doesn't, you know, he's a larger lad and doesn't need to run as much, and he's just going to walt the ball. We then have two bowlers, one who bowls off spin and one who bowls left arm finger spin in our top three. So we've got our two all rounders. So now I'm looking at, at that and the match. So I'm looking at that that sort of side of things because almost everyone in professional cricket is a good cricketer. And my theory is I got this from Muhammad Khan as much as much as I've sort of brought it up myself. So Muhammad. Khan was the Jamaica Tellawallers general manager. He's the one who hired me at Solutia. He's like, there are club cricketers around the world at the moment who have one specific skill that if they were given the chance would be really good T20 cricketers. And if you look at Michael Yardi's bowling, Michael Yardi, I think, was Muhammad Khan's um, reference to that. But Andrew Tai is another very good reference to that. Evan Golbus is another very good reference to that. There are lots of these guys out there. Uh, Samuel Badri. I mean, Samuel Badri is essentially 
a club level cricketer in many different ways, except for the fact that he happens to have this incredible skill for about eight overs of a game where he can skid the ball off the surface and he's very clever and he worked out a brilliant way of bowling. There are lots of guys out there like Samuel Badger. Samuel Badger is not the only player out there in the world with those sorts of skills and with that kind of brain. So it doesn't matter if I'm looking at Samuel Badri or if I'm looking at Virat Kohli. I'm literally looking at how does this fit in to the T20 team that I am trying to put onto the field. And, and that's how I, I basically run through all those sorts of things. And also I look for strong buttocks like the Lee brothers. <laughs> um, don't know where to go from that. Um, oh, lots of places. <laughs> well, I guess this this sort of uh, plays into one of the things I, I was quite interested in. You know, wh- what do you see as the place of gut feel and intuition to selecting a team? Because there's a lot of stuff about data, but are there any players that you've been surprised by? Um, you know, the data says that they wouldn't necessarily be good or, or vice versa, where all the stats are saying, well, this this guy should be able to do this thing, but then they just can't. You can't predict the future, right? So, that, you know, it doesn't matter. And, and we don't have a good enough system. There are NBA, number one NBA draft picks that scholars have looked at for years and years and years and decided is the best player of the current crop and they're duds, right? There are players who don't really want to play cricket. You know, uh, there are players who don't like cricket that much. So their natural skills, you see them in the nets and you're just like, well, that's a, that's a 10-year player and they don't make it because they don't care enough um, or they don't like the game enough or... Didn't want it enough. Yeah. Well, it's not even that they didn't want it enough. I, I talked to a guy recently, a, a tennis coach, and he was talking about women's tennis players. And he said, do you know how much you have to like tennis to be a professional tennis player? It is such a hard sport to not like because you have to hit 10,000 balls, you know, every couple of days to be good at it. If you don't actually like hitting those balls and, you know, you, you look at Darko that was in number three pick uh, in Detroit, you know, years ago in the NBA, he, he happened to be seven foot tall and really skillful at basketball, but he didn't want to be skillful at basketball. I think he runs a cheese farm or something now. I don't know if you can have a cheese farm, but... <laughs> Just going out to feed the cheeses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They grow very well in the in the, in the the fields for him. But, you know, you have to actually want it. So there's all these different things to go on. What I say is, we go back to due diligence again. If you're going to make a gut call, you still need all the information, right? And too many of these gut calls are nonsensical, right? And they don't make any sense. So, you know, James Vince. Oh, look how much time he has in playing the ball. And look how good he looks. Yeah, but James Vince averaged 45 in Division 2 cricket. 35 in Division One cricket and 25 in Test cricket. There's a reason that pattern exists. He has, he might look pretty, but there are proper flaws there. Owen Morgan, from the first time Owen Morgan played Test cricket, I said, this cannot work. He has never made professional runs in first-class cricket. He doesn't have the technique to do it. It doesn't matter how great he is at everything else in cricket. It is never going to work. There are, there are certain plays that that doesn't happen. Now, Owen Morgan might get there and change how he bats, right? Now, that's a thing that we can't work out. And we can make different guesses. And the two players that always come back to in English cricket are Marcus Truscothic and Michael Vaughan. If you were doing proper analytics um, during Marcus Truscothic's career, there were heaps of signs there that he was a test player. He would make you know, 120 in scores of 200 on really tough pitches off almost a runner ball, right? You can look through advanced analytics and go, he is a well above average player. It just happens to be that no one is making runs in that period. Michael Vaughan is a player who had all the advantages of the England professional system in that he went on tours over and over and over again and made no runs on most of them, but he went on Lions tours and he kept playing. And then he got picked when he was at his absolute peak age and it still took him 10 or 15 tests to go in. So when people say he's a gut choice if after 12 tests he'd been dropped 
uh, or whatever it was, I can't remember how long it was where he didn't do very well in test cricket, would we be saying that that was another gut choice that went wrong? We can't tell the future. What we have to do is we have to put as much things in our favour, right? So I work with Roddy Eswick when we were in St. Lucia. Roddy Eswick is a brilliant judge of talent, all right? And I know, I know that I am going to use him. But I also know that he has his own natural biases, kinds of cricketers that he likes. But if I talk to Roddy Eswick and then I talk to five other people and then I go back and look at the data and then I look at the video and then I look at, to go back to James Vince, there has never been a middle order batsman in test cricket while we have these numbers who has had a higher percentage of boundaries who's averaged over 35 in test cricket because you have to rotate the strike and James Vince doesn't rotate the strike. The only guys with a high boundary percentage who've ever been successful are opening batsmen. And that's because all the field is in and you can get a few boundaries away early on, right? James Vince's record, it looks like Brenda Saywags and he's trying to do it batting at three, four, five, and six. It doesn't make any sense. Once I start to look at that, I go either... James Vince, if he's averaging 55 in first-class cricket, I can go, maybe he's, he's different. Maybe he's the one that will break that and he can do it differently. If he's averaging 35 in first-class cricket, I'll be like, there's nothing here that tells me that the gut call over, overrides all the information, right? So you have to put all those sorts of things together. You, you're basically trying to weigh everything in your favor. You're trying to make a series of bets when you make a selection mm. where you've got all the most information available to you. And that doesn't mean not talking to cricketers because cricket is a brilliant... Uh, England and now have this system where they have scouts go out. So when they have a wicketkeeper, they have like two or three different wicketkeepers go out and watch all the wicket keepers and they have a I think they have a permanent board of who, who's the best wicket keeper in the country who's the second best wicket keeper in the country and who's the third best wicket keeper in the country right now some of that will be Ed Smith and some of that will might be um, the coach and, and some of the other selectors but a lot of that is these scouts going out and having a look at it and the rest is the analysts looking at the numbers as well so why don't they keep picking the best wicket keepers uh, well, they're, because they're going with the, the, the run sync they're going with the run sync but I'm saying that's what they're trying to do they're trying to come up with a system that does that if you just send one wicketkeeper out or one chairman of selectors, he's not even a wicketkeeper, and he just goes, oh, that's that's my guy. Because, uh, uh, you know, I played a lot of cricket and I had we had a good wicketkeeper a couple of years with us at Essex. So I know what good wicketkeeping is. That's nonsense. That's not a good gut call. Why would I listen to that guy? I want 10 people. And that's that's the difference uh, when you're looking at those sorts of things. There, are, There is a reason that Roddy Eswick is one of the best coaches in the world. There's a reason that, that Spoons is the England coach. You, you can't discount their knowledge because they, they see the game in a different way. And, and the same with the great players as well. And, and even some of the average players. You can't discount their knowledge, but you also have to understand that Shane Warne basically only ever talks up Victorian cricketers or Hampshire cricketers. <laughs> or leg spinners. Right, so uh, with a hashtag of change cricket, five years ago, June just gone, uh, your and Sam Collins' film started out as a movie about saving Test cricket, which ended up as an award-winning expose in the Big Three Takeover premiered. You know, two years after that, the Big Three was dismantled to a degree, bringing it with governance reform, but also funding changes and, a, and more recently a global events schedule proposal that contradicts the global body's mandate to, to champion the game's growth. I guess that's my my thoughts rather than yours. Yeah. How do you feel about the... Uh, the... Get off the soapbox with, and, and ask a question, Carla. <laughs> How do you feel about the, the, the cricketing world post-DOAG? Uh, I mean, Srinivasan is back in it. So while we had a we had a bit of an effect in moving him on for a little while, he's back. He is a Indian nationalist who believes that Indian cricket is all that matters to him, which is fine. Everyone's entitled to their own nationalistic, nonsensical ideas. 
Um, the game, I think for a little while, because of Manahar, perhaps, uh, we got to a point where we were looking at the global game in the best way that probably we ever had. And then we got a new CEO who came in who seems to have been told to make as much money for the ICC in as short as amount of time as possible. And he's decided that that will come out of associate funding. He has decided that that will be slamming as many ICC tournaments as we can into things. My, I have a lot of friends who work for the ICC. They're miserable at the moment. It doesn't seem like he's a very good leader of people. It doesn't seem like he really cares that much about cricket. So I worry about that. From a political standpoint, with Srinivasan coming back, you've now got Dave Cameron making a weird uh, play to be ICC chairman. I mean, that was, that was great comedy, wasn't it? Well, the funny thing is the Daily Mail ran with the piece about it, uh, which is just shows that uh, how little research some writers do before they actually write things. But I think we're in a better spot than we've ever been before. It wasn't that long ago that people were saying no one plays cricket outside the 10 nations or the eight nations or whatever it was at that time. And now people are saying, yeah, the others play cricket. It's just not that good and we don't care. Hmm. That's actually a huge step up. (laughs) Um, So I think it actually will be harder politically for the ICC to continue to make stupid decisions just because a whole generation of sports writers and commentators and everyone and Twitter, as much as anything, has sort of leveled the playing field. When something happens, it becomes a bit of a, a bigger deal. So that, that I'm happy with. But realistically, there's a power struggle with who runs the ICC as we speak at the moment. And we could easily go back to another big three situation or what would be the worst situation, which is what we had before the big three, which was they were going to do it and just not tell anyone. <laughs> and that would be my worry. You must have a shadow big three and they run cricket and they don't really care about the global game. And that's harder. So when we were making Death for Gentlemen, that was the big problem is that the evil empire hadn't actually come out and told everyone they were evil at that point. And so it was really hard to convince anyone that this was happening. Thankfully for us, that that thing got leaked gloriously. And suddenly, you know, we were in a position where we could ride that through to making the film. But for a long time, I was like, we were were basically making a film about the financial crash that hadn't happened yet. Uh, So we're in a a similar kind of position to that now. I mean, you guys know you're on on the front line with this that what has happened to associate cricket over the last little while is disgusting and all the good stuff that Richard Doan and Bob Warmer did to grow associate cricket to get us to the point where we are is being dismantled by short-termism greed and idiots there you go put that on the poster (laughs) (laughs) Um, well we've seen Imran Khawaja as the temporary uh, chairman of the ICC and you know obviously he's come through from Singapore and it just gets me thinking you know how do you think cricket can build a a progressive or a a developed friendly coalition in today's ICC environment with you know arguably a, a shadow evil empire as you called it to, you know how can we fight back the only way that it can happen essentially is you need a convergence of a bunch of things all happening at the same time they had their chance when Srinivasan and uh, the Mudgol report was going on of basically going this is our chance to go independent and run the ICC independently and give all 105 nations a vote if they had to or whatever system that they wanted to come about we, we've seen Irish cricket took a huge step forward when they went independent. New Zealand cricket has been a lot better since they've gone independent. When you are running cricket for cricket's sake, that is the only way to take a step forward with cricket. The ICC had its chance. It will have other chances going ahead because cricket politics changes so often and so many different things happen. But the next time they have a chance to become independently run, they have to push it through. We have to get away from 75-year-old men making decisions about the future of a sport when they don't understand the history of the sport. 
more often than not, let alone what's happening. You know, my favorite, one of my favorite stories of cricket always goes back to the fact that Crick Info was offered to the ICC for free and they didn't take it, right? They had no idea what they were doing. If those, if those are the sorts of people making decisions today, why do we not have a global cricket channel at this point? It is ridiculous. They own cricket.tv and they haven't done anything with it. You can't watch cricket legally because of the way that cricket is run. It is a pathetic situation to be in. So, so for me, there, there will be another convergence of, of events that something will happen where we can do it and we can get independent cricket governance at the ICC level in. If we do not do that, we will continue to go at the whim of whatever is the, the, you know, whatever one of the big boards wants to do at any time. And they will be a string of idiotic ideas, basically. Uh, here's a story about Death of a Gentleman. When we were making it, we were contacted. Sam was contacted by someone in English cricket going, what are you doing? Do you realize like that outing all this, that you're basically making it harder for England to dominate cricket for the next 20 years? Like if the big three thing happens, we can dominate cricket. That's how some of these people are thinking, right? Them, do it properly. Don't put that on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, no, that has to say that. That is on the poster. Uh, so, Godfather 2, Empire Strikes Back, and I'm mindful that we've just been talking about the evil Empire and Palpatine. <laughs> and with a score of 7.3 in IMDb, are, are we going to see a sequel? I think a lot of things would have to happen in order to make a, a film like that again. I wouldn't say I'd never make another documentary on cricket. Um, I mean, you and I have talked about some. Uh, I've talked about some. I tried to get one up. I wanted to do one on Bob Woolmer for ESPN. So Sadly, they wanted to do a really boring film on Sachin Tendulkar instead. There's not enough of those in the world. <laughs> well, I, look, it's one of those things too. The, the Bob Wilmer story is so interesting on so many different levels. Yeah. From the associate standpoint, from the match fixing standpoint, and from the fact that he died, you know, while he was coaching. So I thought that was a sort of a no brainer. I don't know if I'd ever go back in and do cricket politics again. It was so frustrating and I hate them all so much that I spend a lot of my time trying not to do that. But you never know. You never know what will happen. I think I don't think I'd ever do another film like Death of a Gentleman in that I'd never do another film if I didn't know where the basic funding was to begin with. So if Netflix or Amazon Prime uh, were to come to the party and even give, you know, 100 grand or something, I would go off and make a film in a heartbeat. What I wouldn't do is uh, spend four years of my life with a whole film crew living in my house and, and trying to make a film that way. I don't think I'd ever do that again. But look, there's, the story doesn't end. Well, that's your movies. Um little self-indulgent for you here I, I, I want to know what your favorite pieces are that you've written my favorite two are Afghanistan Shahida Freedy of Kansas following uh, Mahabula Archiwell's journey from an, an Afghan village to a village green in in America and Emma Lai walks on the grass a piece on the Hong Kong I wonder why you like that one <laughs> women's captain it's because I pitched it to you on, <laughs> on the evening of the premiere of death of a gentleman and that was what got you to Hong Kong um, Nick what are your favorites before we let, let him answer the peter boron profile you did i think it's called boron's boys power on or something like that but i've always been a big fan of peter boron he's a he's a great bloke and that was a really good profile of him uh the sean tate ing cup final retrospective you did i think it was a 2006 final i've <laughs> always been a sucker for domestic state cricket and new south wales won in the end so that was good yeah and obviously the point fielders with gloves that the discussion on wicket keeping is uh, very close to my heart as a you know terrible club wicket keeper <laughs> we'll link all these in the show notes as well it'd be rude not to i actually linked those first two on our launch story i hope you saw that jared when we launched the website in April 2019 and saying that uh, there are some amazing writers out there. You've got a website? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it's Emerging Cricket. Wait, let me check that. <laughs> EmergingCricket.com. You should look at it. Dot com. Interesting. I'll, uh, I'll take a look one time. Uh, I'm, I'm freelance. I'm available for all, uh, <laughs> Mate, all for, for all jobs at the moment, even to work with you, Cutler. But um, <laughs> look, one one day it will happen. Don't worry. 
the the MLI pieces are really interesting one for me because convincing Crick Info Crick Info have become more and more insular. Sadly, I think as cricket has got bigger, and I think that's partly the American influence of wait a minute, cricket's really big in India. We can make a lot of money from this, and so it's been harder and harder to sort of sell things to them internationally. And I, the only reason I got to go to Hong Kong for those, uh, I mean, you're talking about two of the pieces I think I wrote um, on that trip. Yeah, I was going to say one of those was after the game that Hong Kong should have won. Yeah, the Boran piece that would have got them into the ODI Super League. Yeah. But anyway, not that we're bitter about that. <laughs> So, I mean, the only reason I got to write that was because I literally said to Craig Info that it wouldn't cost any extra on the fare because I had a book to Hong Kong that was going to cost me the same as going to India, but I could stop in India because of the way that Emirates fares were. So sort of tricking ESPN into letting me write those is quite, you know, one of the things I'm very proud of, um, which I haven't been able to do as much as I would like to. It's quite sad, actually. There's so many great stories in cricket that aren't written about because people are just not sent out to do them. And I think MLI is, uh, you like this, Cutler, she's um, you know, in my, my podcast, Double Century, I think she's the 10th episode. So she's coming up quite soon. She's basically just me reading out the piece. But <laughs> Well, not everyone's read it. So yeah, don't let it go to waste. Yeah. If you're going to interview her and get it going in uh, Cantonese with your with your perfect Cantonese, would have been interesting with a voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, so I, that's a really special thing to be able to do. Obviously, the Archie piece, you know, being able to follow someone who never made it to the top level of cricket because of who he was and where he came from. Um, Um, but obviously has great cricket talent and has an incredible story. You know, it's hard not to write a great story when a guy tells you that he was defusing bombs on the outfield before um, kids' games. So, you know, you've got that sort of stuff. Uh, Asif Kareem was a really important one for me. Uh, It was probably the first long form I threw everything into. Uh, Asif Kareem, you know, you start off with, remember that guy who bowled that couple of overs to Australia and you end up writing an incredible story about the history of Kenyan sport really as much as anything and that incredible family that he comes from three generations of uh, Kenyan cricketers tennis champions that that I'm very proud of uh, of that sort of stuff Uh, the the Sri Sants piece as well I think it was a a huge one for me being able to show the other side of match fixing and what it does to someone and uh, rather than the obvious thing of all match fixes are evil is is talk about what happens and how hard it is to prove and those sorts of things and uh, you know I've got a, a few other pieces like that out there but usually it's just the ones that you do the most work on that you end up liking the most um so they're very long form pieces for the cricket monthly i mean that wicket keeping piece probably took me five years from the first time i had the idea of it to when it finished i think i talked to 38 wicket keepers around the world a couple of associate guys gary wilson um i'm not sure i quoted him in there um but he he was one that i talked to and you know you you put all those sorts of things together and you try your best but uh, realistically as a writer, yeah, I think it just comes down to uh, honouring the effort and maybe honouring the story. So Aubrey Faulkner is another one um, that I wrote about where you just like, he's a guy who killed himself thinking that he was a failure and I really wanted to write that wrong. So like, if you look at MLI, you look at essentially it's giving someone a go and we don't know that there aren't M- other MLIs out there because young Hong Kong girls are not allowed to play sport and not allowed to walk on grass, right? Sean Tate, what an incredible cricketer he was. And because he's not the fastest bowler ever, you don't look at him. Asif Kareem only bowled one spell that we remember, but he actually bowled for 20 years and was one of the better left arm finger spinners probably in the world, certainly in emerging cricket. I remember um, Tim Brooks, he wrote, he wrote, I think he wrote an article on the 50 best associate cricketers and didn't have Asif Kareem in. And that annoyed me to such a level. And I think it was because he was a left arm finger spinner. And, you know, again, I think he was just underestimating him. When you look at his numbers, he's certainly one of the best associate cricketers who 
had ever lived. So it's writing little wrongs like that and being able to tell the story of behind the scenes and those sorts of things that I, I really like. And it's the same. And it doesn't matter if it's the wicket keeping piece or something else, you know, more analytical. You, you're trying to show what is actually happening within the game. Everyone says wicket keeping isn't as good as it used to be, but no one actually sat down and looked at all the facts. And so you're trying to do those sorts of things. So if, you know, if I can do that and get to those sorts of stories and illuminate things that people haven't thought about, then that piece is worth it. It doesn't really matter if I write it and no one reads it. I mean, the Asif Kareem piece is a really interesting one because it came out within two days or maybe the same day that I wrote a Michael Clark piece. And the Michael Clark piece I wrote in 24 hours and the Asif Kareem piece took me a year, right? And there's huge, like the Michael Clark piece, I'm very proud of because it took me a day, only took me a day to write. And I think I really got to the essence of who Michael Clark is um, in that piece. But Asif Kareem is like such a great piece of writing. Like I say this from a craft perspective, you know, the research and the quality and every line was sort of changed to make it perfect. And the Michael Clark piece, I belted out. Michael Clark piece probably had close to half a million reads and the Asif Kareem piece probably had 20,000. And a thousand of those probably were me. <laughs> but that that's the gig. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so you, you have to, you have to do that. I was all three. Um, you, you can put your articles in all three and they tell you how much one of my most shared articles ever is a piece about Muhammad um, Amir falling over at the Gabba, hurting his knee and then coming back out to bowl later on after looking like he needed to be amputated. And you're just like, oh, this is bull. <laughs> it's such a silly piece, but that's, that's the gig. And you write the pieces so that someone gives you a chance to write the great pieces. Well, Jared, it's been fantastic to have you on the pod. We've got to the last question, the one that we always ask our guests, and I'm sure you've got some good ideas about this. What's one law in cricket that you would change? Uh, I would go back to the back foot uh, no ball law because I think the front foot no ball law uh, injures bowlers. And I think it's genuinely unsafe. I think it's unpractical in modern cricket to think of an umpire looking down and looking up in um, a camera flash. So I look, I'm quite obsessed with the no balls. So I think it's a big problem within cricket. I mean, you basically had a, a, a time in cricket where we weren't calling one of our laws because we couldn't do it. That just means that the law's broken. That used to infuriate me so much. Yeah, so... Uh, Did they not change that because it was injuring the bowlers because they were trying to stretch too far over the front line? The slide, yeah. To get further down? Yeah, but that's the slide, there's a, there's a better way of doing that, which is you can change what the slide law is. You can, you can change the back foot no ball law, I believe, so that we don't have bowlers sliding. So if your foot touches the line, for instance, your back foot touches the line, uh, then you are automatically, it's a no ball as well. There are there are ways of doing all this that we can do it. I think that we basically, they were worried about the fact that bowlers were dragging all the way down the crease, which is the main thing. So if you look at, I think it's Ray Lumor is the classic example. I believe there are ways around this that shouldn't be that much of a problem. But I think that stress fractures and broken backs doesn't seem, you read the history of early cricket, it doesn't seem to be a thing. Now it could be wrong. It just might be that it wasn't reported on enough, but I think that is a major thing. And I also think that the, having umpired, I just think the front foot no ball law does not make you a better umpire. I think it's I think it's a poor law in almost every way. And I think there is a better version of the back foot no ball law that we could come about now and we could change cricket. So I'd probably do that. But I, you know, I haven't thought about it, the logistics of it too much other than the fact that I think that the front foot no ball law doesn't work. I think that's a, a very good answer. And for a change, a guest who actually knew what they wanted in, in the changes. So not knowing whether you've listened to too many, but a lot of people will say that bringing in a double play, uh, allowing two wickets to fall on any on any one ball. That's a popular one, yeah. Is a lot of people's uh, one. And a lot of it is um, suggestions about taking the stigma away from the, the bowler running at the non-striker. That law is already perfect. Mancad law is absolutely perfect. 
we've, we've nailed that. It's just the people that are wrong. <laughs> it's not the law that's wrong. It's the people. Well, thanks again, Jared, for joining us on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and uh, keep in touch. All right. I better go look after my kids. See you guys. A huge thank you to Jared Kimber again for joining us here on the Emerging Cricket Podcast and a reminder that if you are an Emerging Cricket patron, you can enjoy an extended version of that episode and a host of past episodes as well. To become a patron, log on to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Emerging Cricket where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. For now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Culler and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.